This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and we're learning the hard way. This edition of B-Side is about a group of people struggling to learn, struggling to make it in college. And we're not talking about the usual too many units, not enough time kind of thing. These students are undocumented immigrants, most brought here by their parents before they were old enough to have a say in the matter. And now they're dealing with the consequences. And there are all kinds of consequences, all kinds of difficulties that those of us who were born here don't really think about. To help guide us through this issue, we're joined now by Tam Tran. Hi, Tam. Hey, Tamara, how are you? I'm good. So you're a graduate student at Brown University. You're studying American studies, um, and you're also not an American. Um, Exactly. Can you tell me how you got here and and how you got to be a a graduate student without papers, I guess? Uh, My parents are are Vietnamese refugees. They were both people. And um, after the war, they ended up in Germany when they were picked up by the German Navy. They lived there for about six or seven years, and that is where my brother and I were born. And when I was, you know, a few months into first grade, I, you know, was told that we were going on this family vacation to this place, and I just knew I was going on a plane. And um, I showed up here, and next thing I knew, I was learning a completely different language called English. And I'm still here. And that was in 1989. When did you realize that you were not an American citizen and that somehow this might affect your college plans? Um, I didn't know this was going to affect me going to college at all. I mean, you know, immigration and education, the two didn't seem to mix in any way in my head. I didn't see how the two correlated or if, you know, my immigration status was going to present any obstacles. So a week before my high school graduation, my parents were having, you know, an argument in the other room. And I know these things are usually related to our, you know, immigration process. And, um, but I didn't know exactly what was going on. I didn't know if it was just another one of their discussions or if this was, you know, going to be it. But um, what I did know was that I was going to be graduating in about a week. And um, the day of my high school graduation, um, my mom and my brother went, but my dad didn't. And it wasn't until I got home that day that I realized that my dad had gone to our final, you know, immigration court hearing. He, like, got home and he was like, guess what, guess what, you know, uh, we're going to get our green cards. And I was like, great, sweet. And then, you know, I, I, I took a look at the immigration judge's order. And in the final summary, it said that, you know, we had 30 days to go back to Germany. And... I was just like, um, Dad, I don't think it says anywhere that we're getting our green cards. Um, that day that my dad and the lawyer had gone to court, after the, the judge's decision, they had gone to the German consulate to try to get our passports and travel documents. But the German you know, consulate said, oh, we can't give these to you because you're you know, definitely not German. Um, Germany doesn't have birthright citizenship. And so my, even though my brother and I were born there, because my parents are Vietnamese, you know, there was no way to inherit German citizenship from them because they didn't have it either. I guess it was right around when I was 18. That's when I kind of understood the whole, the, you know, the big picture finally. And what you figured out is that basically you are a person without a country. Right, exactly. Let's talk about some of the complications of being a woman without a country and trying to go to college. Would it be possible for you to sort of run down the list of things that that I wouldn't think about 
that that you had to deal with because you were going to college as as someone who is not an American? You know, even just getting to school for a lot of students because they, you know, don't have the ability to drive to their campus, have to take the bus from wherever they live, you know, for two or three hours a day. And then they just, you know, leave right away and go go back home. Um, I didn't have to do this myself, but I also know other students who, you know, would sleep in the library after, you know, the second week of the quarter, because after that, the library was open 24 hours and they would get a, a locker at the gym. And, you know, that's where they would store their shampoo and their toothbrush and, you know, clothes for the week. And that way they would have, you know, more study time on campus. You know, on top of that, if we were U.S. citizens, we most of us would qualify for some kind of financial aid or or loans, but we don't. We we don't qualify for for any of that because of our immigration status. Tam, as you know, there are tens of thousands of students like you who go through this every year in the U.S. We're going to hear from some of them on this show, but we won't use their full names, and in some cases, we won't use their real names because they're here illegally and they're afraid of being deported. Just the fact that they're here, that they take up seats at American universities, is controversial. We start with a story from Jude Jaffe Block, who tells us about a legal fight about how much undocumented students in California should pay for college tuition. Marco has just finished a full day of classes at UC Berkeley, and he's preparing for an even fuller weekend of studying. His friend Hannah can't even convince him to see an indie rock band perform near campus. You should come. They're playing. It's a band that's at Coachella. They're a big deal. I got back homework. Marco is an intense guy. He spent his high school years in Southern California competing in math tournaments. He says Berkeley is his dream school, and he worked like mad to get here. I was top ten, number nine. Academics have always been something really like. I've always been passionate about, you know. That passion paid off when he applied to college. He still remembers every detail of getting his first college acceptance letter. I I remember it's March 31st, 2006 at 4.31 p.m. Like opening that email and saying, congratulations, you've been admitted. Like I just burst in tears because four years of hard work, taking like a load of AP classes, like working with all these organizations and doing so much really paid off. Then Marco asked his mom for his social security number so he could apply for scholarships. But instead of a nine-digit number, she told him a family secret. That's when she told me, like, well, you know, we brought you here when you were really young, so you basically have no status. And I didn't really understand what that meant. <laughs> you have no status or you're not a citizen. I just took it as, like, okay, so what do I do now? Marco was born in Mexico. He's not American. He's not even technically a California resident. A state law passed in 2001 called AB 540 helps students like him. It allows graduates of California high schools to pay in-state tuition rates at public colleges and universities, even if they're undocumented. Thanks to this law, Marco pays about a third of what out-of-state students pay. But not everyone is happy about this. There's a class-action lawsuit working its way through the courts that challenges AB 540. Basically, an email came around from some classmates. If you had found yourself in this situation, you might want to get in touch with this particular uh, law firm. And so I did. That's Suzanne Bird. She grew up in Hawaii and is one of the 42 plaintiffs on the lawsuit. As a high school senior, she decided to go to the University of California, Davis, rather than a school in her home state. She picked Davis because it had a top-notch animal science program. Here, chick, chick, chick. 
Those chickens are in Suzanne's backyard near Sacramento, California. You're getting full? Your crops all look stuffed full of bread. After college, she stayed at Davis to get her veterinary degree. Now Suzanne is facing a mountain of student loan debt. As an undergraduate, she had to pay the out-of-state tuition rate for all four years. Now with veterinary school, I'm up to about 250000 total, which is a lot of loans. You know, like I'm going to be paying off that debt for decades. The lawsuit questions why students like Suzanne, who are American citizens, pay more than undocumented immigrants like Marco. It creates a lot of antagonism between people coming from out of state versus people who don't have citizenship. It just sets up a bad situation. Winning the lawsuit would not open up in-state tuition for students like Suzanne. That would require another bill. What it would do is make Marco and other undocumented students pay a lot more for college. I can barely afford to pay for school now. Like How, how much worse is it going to be if AB 540 is just taken back or taken away? Paying for school at the lower in-state rate is already a huge challenge for Marco. Undocumented students can't get government loans or financial aid. So when Marco was first admitted to Berkeley, he couldn't afford to go. Instead, he went to community college for two years and saved up. Now as a junior, Marco has finally made it to Cal. He says he understands why people are frustrated that he gets a break on tuition. But he points out that he came here as a child, and California is the only home he knows. For example, I was five years old, and I didn't know what's going on. So am I really to blame? Like, can, can someone really blame me for my parents bringing me over or, like... It's just very, it's a very rough issue. Even Suzanne is conflicted. Her own father immigrated from Thailand to the U.S. My ultimate goal would be that the immigration laws are revised. I know that's a really lofty goal at this point. But yeah, I ultimately I would like for there to be more sane avenues towards citizenship. Suzanne says one of the worst things about joining the suit is that people misunderstand her intentions. I know when we, we did a public announcement thingy on the steps of the Capitol and there were some um, pro-immigrant protesters there. I wanted to go up and explain because I, I felt really wounded that they would think that I'm anti-immigrant when I'm, I'm not trying to be. I just, I want a better solution. Marco wants a better solution too. College is expensive. Immigration laws are messy. And no matter who wins in this case, those two facts won't change. That story was from reporter Jude Joffe Block. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm joined by Tam Tran. She's a graduate student at Brown University studying American studies, and she's also an undocumented student and an activist on these issues. So, Tam, what did you make of the story? I think it really brought out how complicated this, this whole situation is. Um, you know, there is no easy answer for it, but the University of California has kept numbers on the the people ha- that have um, benefited and made use of, you know, AB 540 and have received in-state tuition from it. And when it first passed, the majority of people that took advantage of AB 540 and qualified for it were U.S. citizens. But as time has gone on, more and more undocumented students have heard about the law and have seen this now as a path in which they can finally access higher education. This isn't just in California, right? Right. Um, So in-state tuition, the AB 540 law passed in 2001 in California. But a few months before that, it had first passed in Texas. And since then, 10 other states have introduced and passed and now implemented 
um, similar laws. And so. even so, there are issues with not really being able to get loans and, and not qualifying for most scholarships. And that leads us to our next story. Martin Ricard is going to take us to a Northern California high school where students have taken up the cause of their undocumented classmates and they're raising money to help them pay for college. Do you guys want to buy something? <laughs> sure, sure. How much are they? Uh, the fruit is $2, the juices are $0.75, cents, and the cupcakes are $0.75. Cents. This might seem like your typical high school bake sale. A group of students from a school club selling homemade cupcakes with frosting and high C juice boxes. Nothing unique there until you ask them why they're having the bake sale. We're hoping to raise at least $500 um, to give to an undocumented senior student as a scholarship because, you know, the government doesn't give money to those who don't have their papers. Janae Miller is a U.S. citizen. She's also a senior here at Lighthouse Community Charter School in Oakland, California. We're hoping to like leave this legacy behind so that it can help future seniors in the future. Like Janae said, most undocumented students have a really hard time going to college because they're not eligible for any state or federal aid. And loans are even hard to come by. How much is the fruit? $2. There you go. Thank you. Laura is helping out with the bake sale. Like a lot of undocumented students, she's going to start at a community college instead of a university. It's cheaper that way. So I'm going to have to work and pay for my college. So that's why I want, like, a college that doesn't cost much. That doesn't mean she's happy about it. That's why Pilar and the other students here have decided to speak out about their situation. I think for a lot of teenagers, the the thing that motivates them to do whatever they do is rage inside of them. And I think that's what motivates me is just being mad about people thinking that they can push me down and oppress me just because I don't have a nine-digit number. That's lingo for Social Security number. Without it, Pilar's at a real disadvantage. Josh Weintraub is a school counselor. He helped the students at Lighthouse start a support group for undocumented students. He says most of the kids at the school are immigrants, and somewhere between 10 and 15 percent are undocumented. One of the things that I think was most impressed upon me early on was the incredible obstacles that stood in the way of students that didn't have social security numbers. That was more of a challenge than any of the educational issues. The students couldn't have known, but their group is a part of a grassroots movement sweeping across California high schools and colleges. So over the three weeks that we're going to have, we're going to divide into groups, right? (coughs) One is going to research what's Dream Act, what's the Dream Act, This is a meeting of the undocumented support group. Their mood is somber. They're meeting in a schoolroom basement. The walls are colorful, but the students are all dressed alike in black hoodies, black sneakers, and jeans. A few students stay behind to talk after the meeting. Luce tells the story about how she crossed the border. She's soft-spoken and looks down through her glasses as she talks. We didn't choose to come here. They brought us, like our parents brought us. She came to California when she was nine. Her mom invented a story that they were going to see her dying grandfather. Luce doesn't like the way it all went down, but she's here now, and she's determined to go to college. They didn't even ask us, like, do you want to come? Do you say, get in the car, we're leaving, we're leaving at this time, and it was just, it wasn't fair. And but right now I can just go back because, like, my future is like a few steps away from me, and I'm not going to live it just that easy now. The others nod in understanding. It's one of the reasons they're becoming outspoken about their situation, despite the risk of getting the attention of immigration officials. Pilar says their journey to get here puts them under even more pressure to succeed. 
I think that our parents brought us here to seek better opportunities and to have better lives. And, like, I feel that I can't go back anymore because they want me to be someone in life. I feel that all of us feel like we have a responsibility and that we're here to make a change. They're doing it 75 cents a cupcake, one cupcake at a time. So, anyways, how much money have you guys raised so far? Um... Yeah, 182. We actually, it's kind of tricky. We actually spent more than our profit. That was Martin Ricard. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Tam Tran. Tam, did anybody hold a bake sale for you? Um, Well, nobody held a bake sale for me specifically, but I do know that when I was an undergrad at UCLA, we, um, I think our first fundraiser was actually selling quesadillas on campus, but, (laughs) um, but yeah. But you had, you had sort of your own bake sales. I mean, you were, you were scraping jobs together to to pay for your schooling undocumented students you know not only not qualify for any kind of financial aid but a lot of us also can't legally work and so what we end up doing is we start working in you know the underground economy although you know technically it's not like what the term actually it's not like you were selling drugs exactly (laughs) I was gonna say yeah I was you know, tutoring kids after school. I was looking in the school paper, looking for for ads that, you know, advertised the need for, you know, a tutor for their kids. And that's what I did um, a lot of the time. And there were other times when, you know, tutoring wasn't going so well. So I remember one time I noticed that, you know, the Urban Outfitters in Westwood was clearancing out a lot of their clothes. So what I did was I bought a lot of it, and then resold it on eBay. And so I guess it's more of, you know, being an entrepreneur than it is working in the underground economy. Now, you so. have been, for the last few years, working on something called the DREAM Act. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? That's a, a federal, would be a federal law. The DREAM Act was first introduced, I think it was in 2001 or 2002. And the bill, if it were to pass would give undocumented students a path to legalization. Pretty much, if you arrived um, in the U.S. before the age of 16, then you would qualify for conditional status, which would last for six years. And during those six years, you can either complete two years of college or serve two years in the military. And after you complete that, you would then uh, move on to permanent residency. And after five years of permanent residency, you can apply for citizenship. And that is an option that a lot of undocumented students don't have at the moment. And in the meantime, some universities have started trying to create systems within the universities to make it more welcoming for undocumented students. And one of the places that's doing that is Cal State Long Beach. And Karen Wise takes us there. California State University at Long Beach is so Southern California. Students skateboard to class. They study outside in the sun, and they're often first-generation immigrants, like Jerry. We took the bus all the way through Mexico, and then 
where we literally hopped a border from you know someone's backyard into the U.S., walked down a hill, and took a bus to L.A. Jerry's mother brought him to the United States from Guatemala when he was nine. He's lived here without documents for almost two decades, and he's still scared about being found out. This is the first time I've ever spoken publicly about my situation. Nobody knows. I really don't like to put myself out there because then people have access to you because I'm just really paranoid. That fear of being found out infects everything, including his life as a student. What faculty can he tell without getting in trouble? Who can he turn to for advice? I don't like having too close of a relationship with people or like really telling them my situation because I don't know where they stand with it, you know? They might not care or they might feel totally offended or they might do something about it that might jeopardize your situation. Several hundred students on Long Beach's campus have the same dilemma. They're undocumented. They're not supposed to be here, but they are. And they're trying to get an education. Long Beach is trying to help these students. No other college is doing anything like it. It's called the Ally Program. Faculty and staff get training to address the specific challenges undocumented students face. And when they're done, they get a decal to display in their office so students know who to turn to. The logo is basically like a cropped uh, Statue of Liberty. Jerry designed the logo, and now it's around offices like Ruby Lavelle Hartley's, helping students find safe spaces. So on this credenza... I have a lovely potted flowered plant along with my ally sticker, and it's in a glass frame. Ruby's been a career counselor at Cal State Long Beach for 35 years. She's really cheery with a big smile and comforting presence. She's clearly proud of her decal. I wanted it to really have a professional looking preference and stand out so students could see it. To get the decal, Ruby went through four and a half hours of training. She's one of 80 staff and faculty who've already taken the course to become official allies. The program was created by Elena Macias, the university's head of government and community relations. The first part of the training is to help faculty and staff get in touch with the fact that this is a very emotional issue. The training also touches on immigration law, but Elena says they're not being trained to provide legal advice. They just don't want the allies to say anything that could put the students at risk. For example, not giving them advice that would put them in legal trouble. And that's easy to do, to advise somebody to do X. And immigration law says if you do X, then you're going to be deported. Like, they shouldn't advise students to use a fake Social Security number to get public benefits. That is ground for automatic deportation. A highlight of the training is a video of a student panel. One student describes his six-hour bus commute to and from school each day because he can't legally drive. Another tearfully tells about being grilled in an exam when she couldn't produce a driver's license. And at that moment, I felt like the criminal. And all I wanted to do was to take my exam. It's sensitivity training to help staff and faculty understand how seemingly small things can be very trying for students. Something as simple as having class meet off campus. Here's Jerry again. And, you know, I don't have a license. and But, I mean, I still drive. You know, it's, it's reality. He knows it's illegal, but in sprawling Southern California, he says he doesn't have a choice. When classes meet off campus, he gets nervous. So there's been times that I've been un- uncomfortable, you know, not being able, you know, not be- being able to offer people a ride for the, you know, fear of being pulled over and having my car taken away. And then I have to walk home. And if I have five people in the car with me, you know, how is that going to be, you know, when something like that happens. The issue also comes up around jobs and scholarships. Students say when faculty don't know their status, 
they sometimes send them leads that require a social security number. Sometimes they come to me for a specific job that they want me to apply for. That's when I have to break it down, you know? It's like, you know, I really can't work. And that's another, you know, back to reality moment for me, you know? At the Ally training, everyone gets a resource guide with information on the few private scholarships and internships that don't require legal residency. It also has everything from how to get a tax ID number to specific contacts in each department for more information. Ruby, the career counselor, recalls a time last semester when a student noticed the decal and revealed her immigration status. I did say to her, oh, okay, I'm, I'm glad you shared that with me, and I've gone through some training so that, you know, I can provide additional information. And I went into my file and whipped out my folder, and I'm thinking, oh, please, let there be some information in here that can, you know... <laughs> be a direct assistance, and uh, it was, and I was just so happy, and she seemed to be very pleased. The student came at just the right time, after Ruby had gone through the training, because before... I didn't know anything. Uh, I really didn't have any facts. There are more training sessions planned for another 150 faculty and staff at Long Beach. Other campuses have expressed interest in the program, too. So maybe Jerry's logo and the allies it represents will spread to other colleges, letting undocumented students know who they can trust. That story came to us from Karen Wise. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and we're learning the hard way on this edition of B-Side. We're talking about what it's like to be an undocumented immigrant trying to go to college. And we're joined by Tam Tran. She has been living this for the last several years, and now she's a graduate student at Brown University. Tam, I think one of the biggest fears or one of the the greatest underlying fears that an undocumented person has sort of at all times is is the fear of being deported. Was that the case for you? Not knowing, you know, when you were going to get that knock on the door, you know, early in the morning, you know, and have, you know, people in uniform take you away and not knowing when that was going to happen has always been, you know, really, really terrifying. That knock actually did come for your family. And within a few months after you had testified before Congress about the DREAM Act, right? Right. I was at work, and I noticed that I had, uh, you know, a couple of missed calls on my phone. And, um, you know, the, the next time that it rang, you know, it said that it was an unknown number. And when I picked it up, it was a collect call. It was my mom on the other line, and I knew that this was not going to be good news. When we finally connected, you know, she said these exact words, they, they got us, they came this morning, and I knew exactly what she was talking about. Um, so it turned out that ICE had come to my parents' house at about 5 or 6 that morning. And ICE's um, Immigration oh, Customs and yeah, Enforcement? Yeah, ICE's um, Immigration Customs Enforcement. They were taken away in a windowless van to a location that was disclosed to them at the time. And it wasn't until I was able to contact... Um, the congresswoman who had set up that congressional hearing for the DREAM Act, that she was able to then um, make some phone calls and have my parents released because we actually, um, you know, have a weird immigration case. And even though we have a deportation order, we actually don't have a country to, to be deported to. And so you have this very uncertain situation. And at the same time, you're in the process of getting a PhD in American studies. So you could 
know more about America than most people and, and still not be American ultimately. Right. Yeah. I think about how ironic that, you know, really is that if things don't change, if the DREAM Act doesn't pass, then, you know, being having a PhD in American studies still isn't going to mean that I'm an American at all on paper. Well, Tam Tran, thank you so much for being with us on B-Side. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was definitely fun. And that's all for this edition of B-Side. The show was produced by Catherine Barron, Renee Gattel, and Susan Vallett, with stories from Jude Joffe-Block, Karen Wise, and Martin Ricard. For more about B-Side and about the issues we covered today, please visit our website. It's bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. I'm Tamara Keith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.